0: Your Bibles with you. you can open up to 2nd to Timothy, 2nd Timothy chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be taking a little bit of a diversion from our study uh, in the book of Ephesians so that I can share with you some of the things I've been challenged by and blessed by attending the Shepherds Conference this week. And so let me just read this text and then we'll dive into our time together. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, the title of giving this sermon is The Infinite Value of Scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your word this day. I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged by the truths of the infinite value on the word of god we thank you for its inspiration and its inerrancy and its infallibility and i pray as we look at these things and as we look to your word that we would truly see christ and it's in his name we pray amen well as i was sharing with you i had the joy of being at the shepherds conference this week with about 15 of our own guys About uh, almost 5,000 men in total uh, came together to attend the Shepherds Conference Tuesday through Friday of this past week. And so I commend to you all of the messages that we were able to hear there, and I'm going to try to give you the best synopsis of the whole conference in one message, all right? So I was really uh, blessed to have Dr. Barrick, and uh, he uh, shared at one of the breakout seminars on Friday and did a fabulous job. And in the chapel, they're supposed to, down at Grace Community Church, it's supposed to seat around 300. Well, we had well over 600 men packed out in this chapel, and there was guys even sitting there on the steps, literally at Dr. Barrick's feet, and I just wanted to shout out, he's the chairman of our elder board, you know? You go, Dr. Barrett, you tell him. So like in a good way, but in a humble way, I'm so thankful that Dr. That Dr. Barrick is with us. And I was most uh, encouraged and instructed in, in our time throughout the conference. And hanging out with, with uh, seminary students and lay people and pastors of other ministries that many of you would know and love was just a fantastic uh, uh, encouragement to my own heart. And so I thought the best thing I could do, again, is to try to share with you just a little taste of what the Shepherd's Conference was about, so that it would whet your appetite to go on the website of shepherdsconference.org, or you can just get there through the Grace Community Church website and listen to as many sermons as you can that were preached this week. The theme for this year's conference was biblical inerrancy. In many ways, it has been referred to as the summit of biblical inerrancy, the idea of a generation of scholars and pastors coming together again, just like they did back in 1978 when the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy was given. That statement says this, We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. Well, that statement was formed almost 40 years ago in the city of Chicago when the conservative scholars of the day came together to make this statement. And it's a statement that we still hold to today. It's a a statement that our church would hold to. It's a statement that the Shepherds Conference wanted to highlight and have this new generation almost 40 years later get a taste of the importance of these truths. Well, many people ask Dr. MacArthur, why is it that you would want to host this this summit on inerrancy? And so in his opening keynote session to the conference, he pretty much gave a lot of the material I'm about to give you now by way of this introduction. And he simply just said, the scripture is attacked and we are called to defend it. Any reader of the Bible is aware of Satan's threat to destroy the word of God. This threat comes through what scriptures call false teachers and false prophets. According to 2 Peter and Jude, these false teachers are described as stains and blemishes and hidden reefs, clouds without water, trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted ways of the sea and wandering stars." It is also clear from Scripture that the greatest threat to the church comes not from the outside, but it comes from the inside. It comes from those in so-called evangelicals, uh, the evangelical church who call themselves Christians. But Jesus warned us that they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that Offenses will come to try to lead astray those who are in the church, but woe to the man from whom which they come. Don't cause one of the least of these to offend a believer and drastic action is taken against those who cause others to stumble. We expect offenses from the world, an attack from without, but we've got to beware of the attack that happens from within. And the reason the attack sometimes comes from within is because people are not truly born again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about how the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the veracity of Scripture oftentimes is doubted by those within the church simply because they don't have the biblical fortitude because they've never been biblically converted to know God. If they knew God, there would never be doubt or there would never be a serious reason to go against anything that Scripture says. That passage in 1 Corinthians goes on to say, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, we've been instructed by God's word. We don't instruct God. We've been given the mind of Christ because we've been regenerated. And so we've been instructed from scripture, all things that we're to know about God. We are ultimately instructed through the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And if we're talking about the inerrancy of of Scripture this morning, we should also be thinking about the inerrancy of God. The inerrancy of the Holy Spirit who gave us His Word, who is true, and who leads us into the path of righteousness. If you have a problem with Scripture being sound and truthful, then it means you have a problem with God being sound and truthful a serious thing to cause people to doubt the veracity of scripture there's no greater offense than for people to question the inerrancy and the authority of scripture it's been happening throughout biblical history genesis chapter 3 when the serpent said has god really said you will not surely die and there's the first attack against the inerrancy of god's word God didn't really say that. He didn't really mean what he said. One of the earliest heresies to enter into the Christian church in modern history would certainly be the idea of even Roman sacramentalism. MacArthur then goes on this rant, if you will, but in a good way, about various pictures of church history that have replaced the authority of scripture with something else. And so the first that he mentioned was the idea of Roman sacramentalism, which is the idea that an individual can connect with God through ritualism and religious ceremony. The idea that people uh, can connect with some kind of, of, religious system to God, but not know Christ. Not look to Christ as the means of the only mediator, but rather confuse things by adding Mary and other sacraments and other councils and creeds to give some type of authority instead of Christ alone. The next attack that he mentioned was that scripture has been pushed aside by what's called higher criticism or the idea of exchanging the authority of scripture for the authority of human reason. As so we moved into the, the Enlightenment and the day of rationalism, basically it's caused many liberal scholars to question everything from Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch to the physical resurrection of Christ. I mean, if you read any type of, quote, literature that, that, that uh, is from the church even, there's all kind of doubts about every book of the Bible. There's all kind of introductory material that you read through textbooks that give arguments of why maybe that author didn't really write that book, or maybe that book isn't actually historically accurate, or maybe some of the things in there don't really mean what they mean. Then we move into the time of the cults, where they have exchanged biblical authority... For the authority of people and personalities and forms of Christianity. They've exchanged the authority of scripture for the authority of self-appointed leaders. Like Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy or Ellen G. White or Joseph Rutherford. Who are well-known leaders of various cult movements. Then MacArthur went on to say, it wasn't long after that until the Charismatics stepped onto the scene. And we're talking about that category of those who would exchange the authority of Scripture with so-called personal revelations and ecstatic experiences. Not saying that everybody who claims to be a charismatic doesn't hold God's word in high regard. We're just saying that practically many of those who claim to that particular view would say that it's more about a personal experience that they had and they began to harm a helpful hermeneutic to scripture and they began to seek experiences where experiment, experimentalism becomes king. Uh, the third wave supports paranormal approaches to the scripture and also supports the idea that truth is determined within a person. I remember attending a service where I used to be somewhat charismatic, and I went up to the pastor afterwards to challenge him on some things that had happened in the service from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And as I approached this pastor, and humbly as I could, wanted to just ask him how what he did in that service was the same as what the Bible instructs in 1 Corinthians 14, which gives various ways that tongues should be practiced as they were practiced authentically during the first century. To which he looked at me and he closed my Bible. And he said, son, you don't need the Bible. You just need the Holy Spirit of God. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because if you were, then you would know the things I said today were true. And I said, well, what about 1 Corinthians 4? You don't need your Bible. I'm not saying, again, every charismatic is that way. But you understand those that are to the far, out, you know, far leaning outside of Scripture have replaced the authority of Scripture with some type of, some type of claimed experience. Not only has there been these things, but more recently there's been the new apostolic reformation, which they claim that apostles must take over churches so that the church can form, uh, can get rid of the pastors and elders so that it can be purified and that they could be ready for Christ to come back. There's all type of movements that are going on that sometimes we're not even aware of because of the craziness of people, again, moving away from scripture to so-called direction from God in various Mediums. Not only this, but we have Christian psychology that is all about exchanging the authority of Scripture for Freudian theory. Truth has been exchanged for subjectivism and all kinds of secular psychologies, leaning on man's wisdom to learn about human behavior instead of God's wisdom that addresses the heart. We have consumer driven churches that have exchanged the authority of Scripture for felt needs and for programs. They've exchanged expository preaching for ear tickling. They've moved from letting God grow their church to rather the human idea of marketing or a good campaign or a way to somehow get up on what's going on in the world by competing in various forms of entertainment. They've propagated themselves as churches, but oftentimes are led by naive leaders who don't even stand for the gospel. Compromise oftentimes is redefined as love. Doubt against the scripture is disguised as humility. Believers like you and I are called to defend the Bible. It is under attack and it's our job as preachers and it's our job as elders and it's your job as Christians to defend the truth of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, talks about how we are to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And the context is talking again about arguments that would go against the Bible or the truth or the Christian doctrine. And we're to take those thoughts and those arguments and make them captive to Christ. Those who go against scripture deserve the harshest words of condemnation. And you and I must be ready to declare that our love is for Christ. And that Christ is defined to us through the scripture. The living word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what? The truth is that many of us in this room would agree with most of what's said. But then in a practical way, sometimes we deny the The uh, inerrancy of Scripture simply by not spending time in the Word. We don't know what the Bible says because we don't study it. We expect others to teach us and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to teach us through the Word. I wish we would just say instead of I don't have time to be in God's Word, I wish we would be honest and say it's just not a priority. It's not a priority in my life to get up a little bit earlier, to sacrifice out some of my hobby time or my entertainment time to spend time in God's word. And when we do that, we fall into some of these same influences because while we claim the word of God, it doesn't really take a central part in our life. And I think there's a huge lack of motivation in the lives of many people today in the church. I- I'm surprised as I talk to people, I, I know as I was a youth pastor for eight years, I fully expected young people to tell me they had trouble really spending regular time with God in His Word. I expected that at ages 13 and 14 and 15 as young students are establishing what it means to have a quiet time. I must say I've rather been shocked as a senior pastor to realize the problem doesn't stop with 18-year-olds. But it moves into full-blown adults who week after week would say, maybe, you know what, I just haven't had time really to look at the Word of God this week. Let me give you two motivations why I look at God's Word every day. This is all for free, all right? I I, I try to spend time in God's Word every day because I I know I need it. Let me give you an illustration. I would say that um, we don't go without things we really need, so I don't go without food. I'm saying I need food, so I like to eat. So I, you know, some people say, well, I got so busy at work, I skipped lunch. I'm like, how in the world did you do that? Like, how could you not know that it was like lunchtime? Like my body communicates to me and I don't care how busy I am unless it's an extreme emergency. I'm going to carve out time for lunch. You know why? Because I love the way food tastes just being honest, man. I like good food. In fact, last night we took our family to a gourmet burger place. Somebody had given us a gift card and we ate this fantastic burger. Of course, the kids thought it was all yucky, but Lisa and I were like, oh man, this is a burger. That's what I'm talking about. I love the way food tastes. That's the first reason that I eat is I just like the way it tastes. The second reason I eat is because if I don't, I'll die. I mean, you get that. If I don't eat On a daily basis or at least over a long period of time. I will die. And so will you. Some of us could maybe go with skipping a meal here or there. No I didn't say that. But the idea is that we have to eat on a regular basis to stay alive. And I would say how much greater is the idea. That those would be the same motivations. Of why we come to the word of God. That we love the way the word of God tastes. As Psalm 34:8 8 says oh taste and see that the Lord is good that we ought to be coming to this book on a daily basis because we love to and every verse that we read tastes good to our hearts and our soul and satisfies us with real substance and the second reason we should come to the inerrant word of God on a daily basis is because if you don't you will die you will die on the vine as you lack the fruit of Of true biblical knowledge, which should be translated into biblical conviction and obedience with great joy and a very present state of mind. It comes from having our minds washed and renewed on a daily basis from the Scripture. And so these are some of the reasons why this morning's sermon is entitled The Infinite Value of Scripture. Without Scripture, you can't live, without Scripture, there's no eternal life. It is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. The scripture is infinitely valuable. And for that reason, it demands a response. And so our outline gives five headings which describe what infinite value of scripture demands from us. It demands these five things. Number one, it demands that we first understand the origins of scripture. So your first blank, if you're taking notes there, is let's talk for a moment about God's inspired word. That was our main text that we opened up looking at how all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you, you need to understand the doctrine of inspiration, it's not talking about, oh, I was inspired by that love song or that biography or that movie that I watched that really inspired me to do better in life. That's not what this word means. It literally means God breathed. In fact, it's the word for breath or for spirit in the original language that God breathed out his word. And in preaching on this this week, Ligan Duncan. I I thought it gave a very helpful three-point outline. This will be on the side portion of your notes because it's not in your notes. He just simply said this. Number one, he tells you what the Bible is. Paul tells us about the nature of Scripture in these two verses, namely that there's a plenary verbal inspiration. That's what theologians use those words to define this idea of the inspiration of Scripture. First of all, it's plenary, which means all. And that's why Second. Timothy 3.16 says all scripture. Plenary means all. It's plenary, but it's also verbal. It's the spoken word of God. Grafe. It's written down. It's the word of God spoken out. And then it's inspired. It's God breathed. Just like in creation, God spoke the world into being. God also spoke the word into being. It's his very breath. And so we believe that the Bible is inerrant because we believe it's inspired. And so first, he tells you what the Bible is. Second, he tells you what the Bible is for. There, Paul writes about how it's profitable. That word means beneficial or it's useful. The Bible is profitable and it's useful. It's more than just relevant. It's essential. Without it, you will die. It does Produce great relevancy. I'm always surprised when people say, Well, I don't preach the Bible because I'm trying to be relevant. I'm like, Well, what's more relevant than truth? To bear down on your life, to construct you of the path of righteousness. You're telling me that a story or a movie clip is more relevant than the word itself? So it's more than relevant, though, it's essential. So he tells you what the Bible is. He tells you what the Bible is for. And then Ligon Duncan said, he tells you what the Bible does. And that's where we go into, it's it's for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. He told us that as preachers, our job is not only to teach the Bible in this way, but also to help you get there. Our job's only half done in teaching. We're also to be shepherds, That walk alongside the sheep as even we ourselves are sheep and need shepherds to come alongside of us. That we are to be teaching you and reproving you and correcting you and training you. And so we see here again in our outline that not only is the word inspired, but our next blank is this. The word of God is inerrant. God's inerrant word. That's the main word that we've been dealing with at the conference and even in the sermon this morning. Relatively a young word in the English language formed in 1837. Inerrancy means literally, quote, without error, close quote. That's what it means. It's inerrant. It's without error. A dictionary definition would go like this. The quality or condition of being inerrant or unerring freedom from error. The Oxford English Dictionary defines it as does not err or free from error. Scripture in its autographa and properly interpreted does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact. So in other words, Scripture as originally given by God and recorded in the original manuscripts, which are called autographs, are completely inerrant. Feinberg just defined this doctrine of inerrancy like this, quote, inerrancy means... That when all the facts are known, the scripture in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether it has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. Pretty comprehensive definition to remind us it's not just about doctrine here. We're talking about morality. We're talking about social Custom and interaction and physical things and life sciences. The Bible is inerrant on all of that. Anything that it addresses, it is inerrant. It is without any error. Grudem defines this doctrine as the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact. If you want one verse on inerrancy, you could jot down Revelation 22, 16 through 19. If the Second Timothy passage is about inspiration, certainly this would be a reminder of inerrancy. Revelation 22, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, and bring and the bright morning star, the Spirit, and the bride say." come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who, thirst, who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price now listen to this i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, obviously, that's talking about the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. But there's at least six other times or five other times, six total in the scripture where similar comments are made, bringing great precision and authenticity to god's word not being tampered with and if we tamper with the word of god we tamper with god and if we do that then he says that we'll suffer the plagues and the punishment mentioned in this book let me give you just a couple of facts about the bible if i can it's written over a period of 1500 years loosely speaking we could say 2000 if you hold to the fact that Job is included in writing the book of Job early in the the book of Genesis. So somewhere between 1,500 years up to 2,000 years even. If you count Job being written that earlier, which is what, uh, what I hold to. So the idea is it's written over this huge time span, over three different continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, all right there in the Middle East. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew and Greek, you know well from the Old and New Testament, portions of Daniel in Aramaic, portions of Christ's words on the cross in Aramaic. Over 40 different authors, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, but just one God, just one truth. The book you could read through and see great consistency and harmony and unity about the beginning and the end and the only way to know God through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's almost as if it's written by one author, not over 40, because it is ultimately written by one author. It's written by God, given by the Holy Spirit, superintended the authors of the Bible to record his inerrant word. We have hundreds of Hebrew manuscripts, thousands if you count the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are thousands, as well, of Greek manuscripts—over 5,600 of them. The next best thing, if you compare any other literary work, would be Homer's *Iliad*, which was recorded some uh, many, many years—up to 500 to 700 years after the fact—where Scripture is recorded as 50 years or less after the fact. It, it talks a lot about, as you know, Homer's *Iliad* of the Trojan War. Uh, of the Trojan War, yet nobody. Doubts that Homer really wrote it and that he really meant what he meant when he wrote what he wrote. And yet we take scripture and we have doubts all over the place. I told you there's over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testaments. Do you know how many manuscripts there are of Homer's Iliad? 643. Still a pretty decent number. But of the New Testament, we have 5,000 more than that, giving great veracity and confidence. To the book that you hold in your hand as an accurate translation from God. The church does not give authority to scripture. The scripture gives authority to the church. While the church formed a council in 397 AD called the Council of Carthage. Where the New Testament canon was supposedly canonized at that point. You need to understand that the Bible was canonized when it was recorded. The Old Testament was authorized by the prophets and those who wrote it, also used by Jesus constantly throughout the New Testament, saying, it is written, it is written. The New Testament is authorized by the apostles when they wrote it, who were superintended by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament was written by the apostles and their close associates and accepted immediately by the early church. And so it wasn't like somehow 400 years later, the Council of Carthage, all of a sudden the Scripture became the Scripture. No, 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 no. There wasn't even any active, legitimate, ongoing debate about what book was in and what book was out. It's like when you read scholars, they act like, oh, well, this was a big-time debate about whether this book should have been included. And maybe this one should have been included, but it wasn't really included. It's just simply not true. The early church held to these 27 books without wavering at all, at least for those who truly knew Christ as born-again, regenerate believers Three different principles are used to affirm the authorship. This isn't in your notes, but just real quick, you can just think with me. Authorship, the original canon had to be written by an apostle or a close associate. Like Mark wrote for parts of peter possibly in the gospel of mark or, or, or uh, luke writes for the apostle paul so it had to be written by maybe a, an apostle himself or a close associate if not it's not regarded as valid number two there has to be great consistency largely accepted by the first century church and number three there has to be incredible accuracy meaning they taught the same truth as orthodoxy in the old testament and in the new testament alike Now, there are other books that were recorded, such as the Gospel of Thomas, which was examined and obviously does not belong in the canon. You say, well, Adam, how do you know what belongs in and what belongs out? I just gave you those three things, right? There had to be authorship of an apostle or close associate, consistency and accuracy, and the Gospel of Thomas doesn't meet any of those. In fact, at least this is the idea that it's failed to be included in the canon because it was deemed heretical. It was deemed as inauthentic. It was probably not even written by the Thomas of the Bible because of its later date. It's not consistent with the rest of the New Testament. In fact, you may be feeling like, well, Adam, I know you know all this because you're, you know, a seminary graduate and you hang out with Dr. Barrick. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't take a scholar to understand some of these things. In fact, let me give you a quote from the Gospel of Thomas, and you tell me whether you think it should be debated to be included in the canon or not. You ready? Simon Peter said to them, quote, Make Mary leave us, for females do not deserve life. Close quote. Jesus said, quote, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. What do you guys think? Should we keep it in the canon? Or throw it out. Which one? down right it's out it doesn't take a scholar to understand some things just don't belong in the bible therefore those things are not deemed as inerrant whereas the bible the real scripture is inspired by god it's inerrant or without error the third word that you hear a lot in this discussion will be god's infallible word god's infallible word simply meaning unable to mislead not liable to fail It will always accomplish its purpose, the quality or fact of being infallible or exempt from the liability to err, or the quality of being unfailing or not liable to fail, unfailing certainty. The Westminster Confession says it this way, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So the idea of infallibility, again, is there's, it is in, internally non-contradictory and doctrinally consistent. Again, simply, it does not fail. Jot down Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, where you know, as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bring forth sprouts and giving seed to the sower and bread for the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed the thing for which I sent it. So we have a responsibility that this invaluable worth of Scripture demands for us, that we understand its inspiration and its infallibility. And in the middle there, of course, its inerrancy. Let's move on to number two, if we can. And also, this, this scripture demands that we understand the impact of scripture. If it's really that valuable, then there's a demand that we understand not only its origin, but its impact. In fact, look again at that Second Timothy three sixteen through 17, and I'll show you four impacts right here in your outline. Number one, God's word teaches the mind. Again, all scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. God's word teaches and instructs your mind. Jot down Romans 12 two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You understand and find out God's will by looking at God's word, God's word instructs your mind. It teaches the mind about God's truth. Secondly, God's word reproves the sinner. Notice again in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, but also for reproof. That's the idea of telling somebody when they're wrong, they're wrong. Of course, that ought to be done in love and with kindness. But it's the idea of 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with complete patience and teaching. You know what the problem with the church is? Nobody wants to tell somebody else they're wrong. We think somehow as soon as we say somebody else is wrong about their interpretation of scripture that somehow we've created a cardinal sin and that the church is now lacking unity. Where the truth is, is we're called to examine one another like a good Berea to see whether or not we stand in the truth. And we need to speak the truth and rebuke those who do not. Before I was married, I had the pleasure of living with a couple of other guys who were young professionals in the city where i worked savannah georgia and we called our house the r&r house and as soon as we said that everybody would just smile just like you did like oh yeah rest and relaxation you probably had a bachelor's pad didn't you well no that's that's not what we thought of And we called it an r&r house we meant it stood for rebuking and rebuilding that's what we were about we were just young bucks in our theology trying to sharpen one another. And we called out each other probably more than we rebuilt each other. But at least we were trying, we were trying to, to apply this important principle. We've got to be willing to call each other out. But we do it in love. Third truth here is God's word corrects the fallen. It corrects the fallen. The fallen. So if reproof is pointing someone's sin out or wrongness out. Correction is trying to help them correct that wrong that they've committed. In secular Greek literature, this word is used to describe setting up an object upright after it has fallen over. So we don't just pound them when they're down. We pick them back up. That's the rebuilding part and set it back right. I mean, would it be good to take a test and just be told you're wrong and everything? Or is it helpful when the teacher corrects your test and shows you the right answer? How will the student learn if he's never corrected from his error? It's like teaching my kids to ride a bike. It's constant correction. A little to the left, a little to the right, a little to the left, right, left, right. Finally, we get rid of those training wheels. Constant correction. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We need to correct each other, but in the spirit of Gentleness. Fourth is God's word trains the righteous. Again, taken from Second Timothy 3.16, you have teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The connotation here is that of rearing a child throughout his life. It takes time and commitment and blood, sweat, and tears. Training doesn't happen overnight. Train up a child in the way he should go. Proverbs 22, 6. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If anybody in here is a parent, you know you've got to tell your child more than once the correct way. It's a lifestyle of constant teaching and training, gently but firmly. Well, let's move on to our third heading The infinite value of Scripture demands that we understand the interpretation of Scripture. Three things you need to remember when you're trying to think about Bible study and interpretation because all of this truth of inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility ought to make you want to study. So let's talk about the fact that you need to, first of all, you need to practice observation. Or what does the text say? That as you study the Scripture, you... And I need to be constantly observing who is writing, who is he writing to, where where is this taking place, what are the cultural distinctives of the setting, why is this so important? There's no better tool for that than a helpful study Bible. May I commend to you the MacArthur Study Bible? You can use any study Bible you want. I'm just saying it's a good one. Why not start there? If you if you like another one better, go for it. That's totally fine. Not saying it's the only study Bible. I just I believe it's a very helpful tool that you could use to help you so when you're reading the text and have no clue what's going on that you at least have a little direction of a further study to consider as you're observing the text second step is interpretation what does the text mean so when you're doing bible study you'd be wise to keep these three tools in your mind observation interpretation now you're asking the hard question well what does this really mean This is challenging, but you can get better with time and practice. This is where we're practicing the discipline of exegesis and using a proper hermeneutic. And I know those are big seminary words, but it just means looking at the Bible literally. What does the Bible say It's kind of what it means. It's a literal hermeneutic or a system of interpretation that we use grammatically. That we examine the grammar and the lexical definition and the tense of the verb or the noun that there is a a historical aspect, that the Bible was written in real time and space, and we look at true historical events that help give us insight to better understand what's going on at that time when the scriptures were written. So there's observation, interpretation, and then comes application. How does the text apply in my life? The Master's Seminary sometimes is accused of doing a good job at the first two and pathetic at point three. On the other hand... A lot of churches out in the culture do a fantastic job, supposedly at point three. but the problem is they've interpreted the scripture wrongly. Most churches where I grew up, the scripture was read, and before it was even explained for one minute, applications were just coming right out of the box, just application after application, and some of them were good. You're like, yeah, that's good, that's good, but wait a second. What does this text mean? Like, what is the subject? What is the verse? What's the theme? Give me a little bit of explanation here. But application is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every child of God to take the Word of God and apply it in a tailor-fit way to your own life. We must be careful that we use these three disciplines as we study the Word of God. Let's move on to our fourth heading if we can. Number four, the the infinite, infinite value of Scripture demands that we understand the person of Scripture. You understand here your first blank under that heading. What is the main point of your Bible? What is the main point of your Bible? As you're reading the Bible and connecting 66 books written over 2,000 years, over 40 authors in three languages and all that that we discuss, what's the main point? Can I just give you the main point of the Bible in one word? Jesus. Jesus is the point of your Bible Sure, we could talk about it's the glory of God, and we could talk about its redemption, and we could talk about the holiness of God, and we could talk about so many things. But without Jesus, you don't see or understand any of it. And so the whole point of Scripture is God's glory and His holiness is on display. It's fully fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, who gave us life as a ransom for many. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're confused about everything I'm saying, just leave this morning with that one word on your lips, Jesus. I want to learn about Jesus who bled and died for me, that if I would turn from my sin and abandon my way and realize that he is the way, the truth and the life, that I could be saved and begin to understand to a greater degree how much God loves me. That's the whole point of the Bible. I would give to you Ephesians 3, 7 through 13 that talks about how that we're made to be ministers of the gospel. Talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Talks about the fact that it was hidden for ages in God who created all things. Talks about how according to his eternal purpose that is realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point of the Bible? Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Who are you most influenced by? Moses, John the Baptist, Ezra, Nehemiah, godly men, biblical men. Hopefully you would say the answer is the same. Jesus, you're more impacted by the life of Christ than anybody you could ever study at any given time. Galatians 2.20, if you're a Christian, you can resound this truth in your heart that you've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What's the point of the Bible? Jesus. Who are you most influenced by? Jesus. You know, we were at the conference. We heard Mark Dever preach a sermon that really challenged me about psalm 119 and psalm 119 is a great psalm it's the longest psalm in the bible it has 176 verses and every single verse talks about the word of god and we were reminded at the conference how the word became flesh and dwelt among us we're also reminded that in the gospel of luke chapter 24 on the walk to emmaus that jesus reminded those disciples that they would see christ from the pentateuch the prophets and even from the psalms so we were challenged that Psalm 119 in many different places could be foreshadowings of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalms like Psalm 119.99 could have foreshadowing. Uh, Psalm 119.99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Could that be talking about Christ? Could could there be something here over the one who wept over Jerusalem's rejection and coming destruction in verse 136? My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Could there be some foreshadowing of indignation of sin at the temple courts in verse 53? Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Do you hear echoes of Gethsemane in verses 143? Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Do you hear possibly echoes of Pilate and Herod joining together to persecute Jesus in verse 161? Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. How about Jesus as he remained perfect on the cross and cried out, it is finished at the very end. And verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Could it be that we're seeing Jesus being foreshadowed? C in your outline is who do you want to be the most like? Who do you want to be the most like? I hope you'll say Jesus. 1 John 2, 6, whoever abides in him. Must walk in the same way in which He walked. The whole point of your Bible is to point you to the Savior, that you would learn from Him, and that you would live to be like Him, even as He lives in you. If you don't believe the Bible's inerrant, you can kiss Jesus goodbye, because they'll take the words of Christ, and they'll take the works of Christ, and even the resurrection itself, and cast doubt upon the man Jesus Christ that's the importance of inerrancy that we look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith the only person who can save you fifth the invaluable excuse me the infinite value I'll get it here in a minute of scripture demands that we understand the importance of being in scripture we need to be in the Word of God. We started off this sermon talking about we give excuses of why we can't or we're not. Can I give you just some very practical challenges? If you're struggling with that this morning, number one, pick a time. Pick a time where you want to meet with Jesus through the Word of God every day, whether it be early in the morning, set your alarm clock 10 minutes earlier, whether it be your lunch break at work or as soon as you get home from school or work or at night before you go to bed, Pick a time and devote that time on a daily basis to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, pick a place. I found it extremely helpful to maybe consider not only the same time, but the same place. It could be at the kitchen table could be in your reading room at home it could be your office at work or your cubicle it could be a spot in the library or a place out at the park but i've just found it helpful to pick a place and go there often number three pick a book of the bible if you don't know where to start or you're having trouble i would not recommend horner's reading plan i just wouldn't recommend it to you for right now i just recommend one chapter per day just pick a book of the bible And begin to read one chapter per day. You can pick any book you want. If it's been a while since you've been in the Word, I encourage you to start with the Gospel of John and study the life of Christ. Read a chapter and begin to use a study Bible and other simple tools that will help you dig a little deeper. Fourth, pick a verse to meditate on. As you read through that chapter, you might just want to pick one simple verse because you can't digest all that you read on any given day, but you can at least maybe pick one verse one nugget of truth that really grabbed your heart and meditate on it. Maybe memorize that verse. Number five, pick a person to share God's word with. Maybe pick your wife or your husband or your child or your coworker or your small group member. And the idea is that just share with them. Begin to talk and have true Christian fellowship. To share God's truth with one another. It's not meant to be read and kept silent in the recesses of your own heart. But after you've meditated on it. Hopefully, we could be the kind of church that's like, oh, let me share with you what I read this morning. Not in a prideful way, not trying to somehow one-up somebody, but because you want to encourage them with the words of life. Let me share with you a truth I read this day that I've been thinking about all day long. You want to encourage your pastor? Come up to me and say, Adam, I want to tell you a verse I read today. If I have to wait here an hour after each service to hear the verses that spoke to your heart, my heart would be greatly encouraged. The word of God is truth. It is life. We need to be sharing it with one another on a regular basis. Well, as we get to this take-home section, Steve Lawson probably gave the best message for my own heart at the conference. He gave a lot of quotes from Spurgeon. He talked about seven symbols of sacred scripture. So if I can, I'll just give these to you in short, and you can reflect on them more on your own. But I like how he said, in his sermon about how Spurgeon used to say that if he did not believe in the infallibility of scripture, then he would never enter the pulpit again. It just had an impact on me to think that's why I get up here week after week, Sunday after Sunday, is because I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And I want to get up and proclaim God's word to you because God's word is inerrant and invincible. Part of that Reason is because we see in God's word these seven symbols of sacred scripture. Number one, the word of God is a sword that pierces. You know where we get that. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the next verse says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In that sermon, we were challenged that the Word of God is a sword that pierces, not a Q tip that tickles. It's not a feather that floats in the wind. Put down, Lawson said, all of your plastic forks. Pick up the word of God and use it as the spirit intended it to be used. Secondly, the word of God is a mirror that reveals James 1, 22 to 25. Verse 23 says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. The law of God, which is the word of God is a mirror for us to look into God's word so that you can see yourself there. And when you see yourself, you'll see your own depravity. You'll see your own sin. You'll see how God refers to your sinful nature, that you're doomed. At the same point, you'll see in the mirror of God's word who you can be in Christ, that you can be forgiven as the sword lays you bare before God that the gospel can come and make you alive again, that you can see in God's word more evilness in your own soul, but more holiness in your Savior. Third, the word of God is a seed that germinates. 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, This is a sovereign seed. It's a monergistic regeneration type of seed that has life in it. Again, Spurgeon said, I would rather speak five words from this book than 50,000 words from philosophers. Why? Because it contains pithy truth that will change your life. All contained within the seed that does a miraculous work to grow in your life and to bear fruit in your life because it's all contained the mystery of the gospel in this seed, the word of God. Next, the word of God is milk that nourishes 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that that you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you tasted that the Lord is good. You know, there's another place in the Bible where it talks about move from the milk of God's word to the meat of God's word. That's not what this text is about. This text is actually challenging you, whether you're young in the Lord or whether you're old in the Lord, that every day in the Lord that you long for the milk, the milk that has protein and antibodies and sustenance, nutrients contained in the milk. And the day you and I stop crying out for the word of God, is the day that you lack true spiritual life and vitality. You see, you and I are commanded to long for it on a daily basis. I've got to be in the scripture. I can't go another day without being with God in his word. Do you long for the milk like that? We've had five babies and I'm telling you there's sometimes they just cry and cry and cry till we get that milk. Right? You're driving down the road and you're like oh my heavens will this kid ever be quiet. Finally we get the kid some milk and instantly it's like oh thank God for milk. Five, the word of God is a light that shines. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a very dark world and the word of God is a lamp giving necessary light to the travelers. The light shines brightest in the darkest part of our night. Thank God we have direction in a confused world, world with the light of God's word. Number six, the word of God is a fire that consumes Jeremiah 23 is not my word like a fire this fire consumes and burns up it consumes all that is resistant to the word of God the word of God is a consuming fire this is a red hot book the scriptures Lawson said are sizzling this is the hottest message that the world has ever known when you are called to preach you're called to play with fire Seven, the word of God is a hammer that shatters. The rest of that same verse says, declares the Lord, the word is not only like the fire, but declares the Lord, it's like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. This is a statement that a hammer shatters the rock. We stand in the pulpit with a sledgehammer. The hammer is harder than the stoniest soul. The hammer is harder than the most forged deception. Therefore, we are urged to wield the sword, to set up the mirror, to scatter the seed, to set out the milk, to set out the lamp, to spread the fire, and to sling the hammer. Do you believe in the infinite value of Scripture? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these reminders from the conference this week. More importantly, from your word from which they were taken. That we would be overwhelmed with its magnitude. With the infallibility of scripture. The inerrancy of scripture. The inspiration of scripture. And I pray, God, that we as a church would long for your word like a baby longs for milk. You would do a great work of revival that would begin with your people returning to your word. Thank you this morning. It's not the word of God that we worship or fall in love with. It's the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That we bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we know him because he has been presented to us through the word of God do a work in our hearts, God, change our lives. Give us greater passion for you and to never waver from the inerrancy of scripture. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.